0: Hello, and welcome to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. How's it going, guys?
1: It's going, going great. I, I just want to, want to tell you... That our, oh, wait. We both just busted into the... <laughs> yeah, you
0: go first. You go first. <laughs> I
1: was just going to say that, as usual, the pre-show conversation was like the best thing in this whole thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. The part that we cannot keep in keep in the recording.
1: Angeline, I just love that I started that entire rant with I don't have a strong opinion, but
0: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And the next <laughs> thing we know, you said a whole bunch of stuff that I can't that I have to edit out.
1: I know exactly. <laughs> but uh, but none of that was a strong opinion. Yeah,
0: you know, I don't really actually care about anything I just said. Tim, what about you? What were you going to say?
2: Well, I just wanted to tell everyone that this pro- that this podcast was brought to you by my new refurbished MacBook Pro. Oh, 2015.
1: Went Mac? Come on.
2: What? Right. What do you mean? Went Mac? I am Mac. Do you know my last name?
1: I? Oh, fine. Oh, really? Really? Really, you gonna go the nepotism route? You playing the nepotism card? i the
2: nepotism card. I'm throwing down the nepotism. card. You know
1: his name was Steve Jobs, not <laughs> you, Steve Macintosh. You,
0: <laughs> the reason he had to go with a Mac for his for the reason this podcast is brought to you by a Mac is because it couldn't possibly be brought to you by
2: a PC. So, we're... thank Whoa. you, thank you very much. Wow, um, wow. <laughs> I can't wait okay. until I can't wait until Apple Computers calls and starts wanting to underwrite close reads yeah yeah I can't, like I can't like wait till I, right
1: now you ready you ready I so i updated my pc to microsoft 10 and it killed it it now turns <laughs> off spontaneously by itself during my classes and a few times during this podcast interesting so if Mac david, would love to convert me now would be the time because i totally need a new computer
2: david have you ever had that problem on a macintosh no, not, a, not, a, not a single time Honey, I haven't either.
0: But anyway, anyway Not to I can't even that honor.
1: Microsoft bullied me for like six months about upgrade, upgrade, upgrade. We're gonna upgrade while you're sleeping, and then boom, they did, and then they broke my computer. Well, and I found out from my students that's happening to them too, by the way. Well, oh, I can't.
0: Really? I can't wait till someone who works for Microsoft is listening, and that is no longer listening. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but right. this is their time to win me over. Like, I need a new computer, so you know, it's, any, it's anybody's game. <laughs> I. I I'm for sale. I will become such a Mac advocate.
2: Probably
1: not, but may- <laughs> well, maybe.
0: <laughs> well, we are here. Um, we we are dearly beloved. We are gathered here today to <laughs> to discuss Greenleaf, uh, one of Flannery O'Connor's stories in the collection "Everything That Rises Must Converge." Uh, but before we do that, we need to we need to cover um, a few things. We need to discuss the children's literature challenge because round one is over. As of, you know, as of the time that we're recording this and uh, we're on to round two, I think round two will still be going or ending around the time this goes up. So let's talk a little bit about round one quickly. Do you either of you have um, I asked you before the show if you had any matchups that you were sad about how they came out and then any matchups that you were surprised about how they came out. I'll start with the one that I'm sad about. Uh, okay, which one are you sad about? I'm sad that Swiss Family Robinson defeated Little Bridges. Uh, I, I I'm hopeful that that's just because not, not enough people have read Little Bridges. I'm um, sure that's true. But uh, Little Bridges is incredible, and Swiss Family Robinson's a good classic book. But Little Bridges is is an incredible
2: is an incredible what book, is? So. I've never heard of Little Bridges, David. What's I never it about? Heard
1: about it until I started homeschooling. So
0: Little Bridges was written in the. 40s i want to say 40s or 50s no cindy rollins is going to kill me because she also loves this book and and if i don't get it right she's probably gonna publicly flog me on the next close on the next mason jar but uh (laughs) 1950 1950 all right i was close enough and it's about a little boy who he and his father move west um from oh shoot the east somewhere they moved to like it's it, they move west. I don't remember exactly where it was. I think Colorado. It's based on the author Ralph Moody's childhood, and it, there's a whole Little Bridges series. And the first one is called Little Bridges. Father and I were ranchers, and it's about their kind of adventures together. Um, and it's it's incredible, especially great for boys. But I've always read that you know even girls like it. It's just an incredible book. Mm. Um, Swiss Family Robinson is a good book though. But I, I bet that a lot of people think of Swiss Family Robinson because they think of that movie from like the '60s which was a good movie i watched that a lot when i was a kid or the
2: ride in disneyland yeah that's hey, how i know yeah. it i mean i've never read the book i read the classic comic book but i've never read the book
0: yeah yeah and then the one i'm surprised about is that the wizard of oz beat pinocchio by
1: that surprised you know, me too 400
0: <coughs> votes almost 400 votes <coughs> Wow. yeah i was really surprised by that which i'm guessing i mean pinocchio is a weird book it um, is weird
1: but so is the wizard of oz
0: yeah and um are
1: people just voting off the movie you think <laughs>
0: I don't know, maybe, but you'd think that Pinocchio, if we're going off movies, Pinocchio's got a pretty popular movie too. So. Um, that, I was those, disappointed that, one that,
2: that The Wind and the Willows and Where the Red Fern Grows was got a matchup in the first round. That was just – that was heartbreaking, David. That was heartbreaking. Neither one of those books should be out after the first round.
0: Yeah, I mean that's there's a lot of complaints about that. I mean that's just the nature of the beast, you know. And we, um, of course, yeah, we, we,
1: it's quote unquote random. I don't believe that for a second. By the way,
0: <laughs> no, they're randomized. It's.
1: I think you and Matt Bianco and Graham are just back there, like I don't know, smoking cigars and being like, "Oh, this is gonna cause trouble." You're like, rubbing no. your hands to okay. glee.
0: So the one thing, <laughs> the one thing we never do is match books up because they're going solely because the matchups are going to be juicy. And cause consternation. What we do is we do create tiers based on like legacy, um, this, the iconic status, things like that. Um, and then we kind of sort of seed them, but then we, so we create categories and then we randomize the matchups out of those parameters. So, Wind in the Willows and Where the Red Fern grows is, I mean, it's randomized. Um, Winnie the Pooh or Al, uh, Winnie the Pooh up against, um, A wrinkle in Time was randomized. That was a hard one. That was a hard one. Um, so no, there. I mean, there there are parameters, but within those parameters, they're randomized. Charlotte's Web versus Anne Green Gables was the one that got a lot of discussion on Facebook because of certain people. But um,
1: I don't know what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, I don't. Yeah, <laughs> I must be thinking of something else. Uh, but but um, that it was. I mean, it was randomized. Um, and you know, one of them kind of ran away with the ran away with it. So um that was pretty uni- not unanimous but you know pretty uh pretty um solid there uh angelina do you have any thoughts on this what what are your what's your response to round one
1: um well you know i was saying before we we started the show that i, I sort of wonder if because i didn't read these books as a kid i don't feel the strong emotional attachment to them that a lot of yeah, people the nostalgia. Do. Like a lot of people are yeah exactly i like people talking about oh it's formative or this and that i mean honestly i I, the only ones I read sort of as, a, I read The Hobbit in the eighth grade, and I read A Wrinkle in Time in the eighth grade, and I think that's it, I think everything else I read as an adult, um, yeah, I think that's right, so, yeah, <laughs> so I don't have super strong feelings about them, um, I, I'm disappointed that A Wrinkle in Time lost to Winnie the Pooh, um, and, Part of it is just because nothing about the world of Winnie the Pooh has ever interested me in the least. I have never understood people's interest or obsession with those characters.
0: Have you read world. the books?
1: I couldn't finish it.
0: Really? See, the ending of the book... But bo- I, loved,
1: okay. I loved A Wrinkle in Time. I like. I just... I don't like these kind of dopey characters, you know, that just kind of like fall fall around and then like stuff just happens around them. And it's like, oh, look at this mess I made. And it all worked out. I just I can't stand those characters.
0: OK, hold on a second. Everybody who's listening <laughs> right now, vote Winnie the Pooh the rest of the way right. because we are going to discuss the winning book. We're going to discuss the winning book on the next Close reads. That's the next book we're going to talk about. And that would and Angelina. It's worth... Angelina has no idea what she's talking about right now.
1: <laughs> I do that, try to doubt that for a second because that I is rarely n- know what I'm talking about.
0: Two things. That is not that's what not... happens in Winnie the Pooh. And second of all, the ending to Winnie the Pooh is one of the three or four best endings of any children's book ever. Any, ever.
1: All right, and I didn't read that for. Okay. Yeah,
0: the ending is incredible. I've read it multiple times to my kids, and every time I, I want to start over at the beginning again because of the ending. Oh,
2: that's great. Hey, um, one thing about a wrinkle in time. I just gotta. I just. I think our readers will be interested in this, a wrinkle in time written by Madeline Lingle. Yep. I had a friend. I'm gonna keep her name out of it. Just Madeline Langle? No, no. <laughs> My friend was hired by Madeline Langle to tend to Madeline Lingle's library in Manhattan. Her private library oh, in wow. Manhattan. Okay. Uh, now, I just how want somebody you to get a
1: job like that. I
2: no, I can't remember how she got the job. She applied for it, she interviewed for it with Madeline Langle. Um, Madeline Langle had this library in kind of like the third floor of this beautiful old church in Manhattan. My friend was living in Harlem at the time. She took care of her library. Now, I just want you to create in your mind what the perfect, what your perfect library would look like, you know, oh, yes. uh-huh. like your yes. own private personal library. I'm just there. picture it. Now, I just want you to describe it because what you're going to describe is what Madeline Langle's library. You're
1: telling like. me she's got the multi-story and the ladder that slides around. Oh, yes.
2: Oh, oh yes. Oh what else you have in your perfect library?
1: Oh, books great lighting oh. good chairs
2: okay what does okay what do the chairs look like that's a great oh
1: one. man what they're like these oversized leather chairs that you could sit in and just like die. they're so comfortable
2: would you accept red velvet for the oh pack? yes
1: yes oh, I, I
2: would could, and that's what my girl had <laughs> what was there oh,
1: my, a I'm fireplace in there although i'm not sure that's good for the books
2: it's probably not good for the books i don't know Everything was like this deep cherry stain or mahogany. I can't remember. I mean, you know, like just this. It would be old... like
1: going into church for real.
2: Oh, it's it felt like it. It felt like an absolutely sacred space. It Did was it stunning.
1: Manhattan apartment. Stunning.
2: No, and in a church. It was in a church. What? Making it Better. It was even better. It was in a church.
1: Jim, I don't. See, my dreams are too small. I don't even know how to imagine that kind of life. Ugh, this is why I'm never going to make any money. It'd be totally lost on me.
2: <laughs> because you spl- you would splurge it all on a like attic library in an old It would not
1: occur to me to purchase church. a church and renovate it into my dream library. I think Oh no, hold on.
2: No, the church just the church just let her use the space or maybe she paid a little rent or something like that. She didn't she didn't buy the church. Uh, she, she just had a set up like in an upper floor of this church what oh I mean in like the, the church and the church decor itself was gorgeous a, a crisp fall day red and orange leaves cascading to the ground as Madeline L'Engle and her library assistant enjoined friends in their perfect Red Crushed Velvet Seated Library.
1: Okay, so I'm turning this into the next AMC drama series. I might be the only one who watches it. That basically, <laughs> nothing's going to happen. It's just going to be like, you know, a one one camera shot, long shot, person walking around in the library acting drunk. You know, that's, I would watch that. <laughs> Actually, it's probably just a YouTube show, and then you can like move the camera 360 around to see everything. <laughs> Ooh, let me zoom in on that. I totally want to know later how it was organized. Okay,
2: <laughs> okay, so, sorry, okay. David.
1: We have derailed the show, but Angelina Absolutely is excited about books. Okay, I was,
0: I, <laughs> I was gonna say, I, I was telling you guys beforehand. I'm feeling a little under the weather, and I just don't know if I have the energy to keep up with this.
1: Um, <laughs> right, we're gonna have to self-regulate. <laughs> it's
0: like it's like my it's like my children. Um, okay, so I know it's
1: better. so, so can I say another controversial statement, or, or is it my turnover?
0: I mean, you might as well.
1: Okay, so. I'm Okay, so if the Winnie the Pooh thing has embarrassed me, then then here comes part two of this embarrassing day. But but this I can I've actually read the books, so I can I can say. So despite my great love of fairy stories, despite my despite my great love for the Celts, I'm not crazy about George MacDonald. There I said it on the air.
2: Whoa, whoa, right? Like I appreciate I, the courage.
1: <laughs> I try so hard to like him, y'all. Like I get it. I know he's influential. I know he's important. Maybe I needed to read him as a kid. I did not enjoy The Princess and the Goblin. God knows I tried. Mm. I've read Paralondra multiple times. I can see it's brilliant. Per- I can see what he's doing. Fantas- I, I can you mean
0: Fantastis?
1: Fantastis. Like, I'm sorry. Fant- I can, yeah, there you go. Fantastic. And I can, I can totally see it. Oh, I see Lewis took this and that and this influenced him. But, you know, I just don't love them. The Light Princess wanted to love it, did not. <sighs> What's wrong with me? Why don't I like George MacDonald? Do you guys Angelina, like
2: it? Uh, yeah, David, I mean, D- cover for me. <laughs> Tim, I mean,
1: wow, that was too big I, of a question. What, what's wrong with me, Tim? What's wrong with me in this instance?
2: <laughs> I can't. I can't diagnose you. I've never read George McDonald. My confession is worse than yours. Wow,
1: which confession is worse? <laughs> uh,
2: yours. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know which of us you're talking to. You. Oh. Uh,
0: <laughs> <Aww. laughs>
1: I, I'm just this is, I, I, <laughs> Poultry, this is a safe space. Poultry is a safe space.
0: Okay, hold on a second. No one said you had to like him. I mean, like you can you can not love a book. I mean, it doesn't like they're great books. That you don't you don't have to love every great book. I mean,
1: it, no, it's No that's cool. true and I mean, I'm really I'm comfortable about that with other authors, but you know, when I was reading people on the Facebook page being really upset that it was losing, I was like, I don't care. <laughs> Maybe it's losing because people also like me did not enjoy the book.
0: Or maybe you just can only care about so many things in your life. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, speaking of things we care about, let's talk about the second round real quick. Okay. Since this is going to go up after people have already been voted in round two, probably, let's quickly go through these matchups. Okay. The Hobbit versus King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Which are you picking?
1: I hate that that's a choice, but The Hobbit.
2: Ditto. Okay. This the next one is the harder choice poo, for me. Winnie the Pooh or The Voyage of the Dawn Treader?
1: Uh, well, I think we know which way I'm going. Go ahead, Tim.
0: Winnie the Pooh, David, I'm you're going, going Pooh. <coughs> I have to think about that one for a while. I mean, The Voyage of the Dawn the Treader the Voyage, is my favorite Don Narnia Trader's book. The the Dawn
1: Treader is going to end up against Hobbit. That's going to be tough. It's also my favorite Narnia book. Okay,
0: Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or Swiss Family Robinson? Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Come on. Okay. Come
1: on. Yeah, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe.
0: Anne of Green Gables or The Wizard of Oz?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm gonna protest vote against Anne of Green Gables every single time. It doesn't even matter. You can put it up against Twilight. I'd vote for Twilight. We, we are. We are- <laughs> <laughs> oh
2: my gosh, I love it. I'm gonna. I don't have that built-in animosity toward Anne. I don't know where she it's coming flew
1: from- too close to the sun in the last voting. That's all I'm saying.
2: Oh, I see. Well, I'm gonna vote. I'm gonna vote for her because yeah, <laughs> Wizard of Oz. Hmm. <laughs> because you're
0: not petty. Uh, Little House in the
2: Prairie. <laughs> That's not bad. Little House
0: on the Prairie and Farmer Boy which are obviously from the same series
1: yeah I don't have an opinion on that
0: yeah me
2: neither I I don't have an opinion I've never read Farmer Boy
0: Oh, Farmer Boy is amazing I vote Farmer Boy Um, that was my favorite book growing up like it wasn't close Really? Um, the first nice book I ever got I was probably like 7 and my mom gave me a hardcover copy of that I still have it the boys read it the binding's a little bit more uh worn now but you know it's still inscribed by my mom my birthday in 19 whatever year it was 92 or something okay uh the secret garden yeah, and the jungle, was book.
1: jungle book what's that i was just telling you where we were on the list yeah
0: jungle book and secret garden
2: secret garden
1: yeah i'm going to go for secret garden too
0: me too Okay, The Wind in the Willows and A Little Princess. This is a tough one, actually. I I vote Wind in the Willows, but those are two really good books.
2: I've never read Little Princess, so I'm going to, by default, go with Wind in the Willows.
1: Yeah, me too. Although I saw the Shirley Temple movie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood and Treasure Island.
1: Okay, this is the hardest one in this round for me. Really? Really? Yes, they're both really good books. I mean, yep. I love the Howard Pyle Robin Hood; love it yep. so much. But I also, I really, really like Robert Louis Stevenson. I mean, like we were joking earlier. Why don't? Why do I not? Why am I not in love with Anne of Green Gables? After all, it's about a spunky heroine. And David said that's me, and I'm like, but I like to read books that are opposite of me. So I, I loved Treasure Island. <laughs> huh.
0: Yeah, I mean, Treasure Island is, it's one of those like classic children boys books like of, of an all so, and,
1: and they're similar genres too you know they're yeah. kind of like boys adventure stories and although robin hood's a little more in the mythic side but oh yeah. i don't know that's gonna cause me a lot of trouble that, that's the <laughs> most troubling matchup for this round for me
0: right now robin hood's beating treasure island by nine votes as of this you know recording Ooh. um and Ooh. i'm a little surprised by that like i thought treasure island might win that one i mean it still might but i early on it's losing all right well that was a quick recap I'm, hold on that was a long recap of, as quick
1: uh, as we're able to do things around here <laughs> yeah
0: of uh of the children's literature challenge head over to uh the facebook page or to our website and make sure you cast your vote in round two of that and then on to round three the final eight which will begin on monday i believe um thanks to everyone who's been participating and talking and conversating tell a friend um, and speaking of tell a friend, we would love it if you could tell a friend about this podcast. If you could, let especially them know. if
1: they work for Apple or Microsoft, <laughs> <laughs>
0: if, if you could tell a friend, let them know where to subscribe. That would help us out a lot. Um, and of course, as always, please leave a review, uh, either written or just a starred review. Both of those things are really helpful. So if you're listening in your in your on your uh, iPhone or your iPod or your iPad or whatever it is, and you're in the podcasting app, you can just swipe that image and you can tap the star button um and if you think we're a five star give us five if you think we're a one star give us one and then don't come back next time because it doesn't sound like it's worth your time um (laughs) (laughs) but uh
1: yeah keep keep that kind of criticism (laughs) to yourself we're fragile over here
0: oh we don't mind the criticism but i don't know why you're still listening if we're that bad um but uh anyway so let's let's talk flannery o'connor now we are here to do that
1: to, oh, yeah, this was so good. To talk
0: about Flannery O'Connor. Um, we're here to talk about Greenleaf. And I said previously that Greenleaf <sighs> is the story that I like to begin with when I oh, teach it. Oh, I can it. see that. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to start with each of you. What, what I would do with this, my students in my class when I teach high schoolers is I would start with the uh, that whole favorite passages thing. Um, just because it's a great way to start conversation. So let's, if you could each just grab a paragraph or, or a section that it was especially i don't know stood out to you we'll just say that if it stood out to you um and read that and share that with us then that would be a great way to start so uh i will let you go first because you were clearing your throat first
1: (laughs) all right i guess i'm one two three four five six pages in um when mrs may goes or she's i guess she's remembering she's remembering the first time she met mrs greenleaf
0: what's the first paragraph the first
1: line uh of the page
0: no no no. like or the where first the first out line of the...
1: nowhere and oh. out of nowhere a guttural agonized voice cried jesus Ah, uh, yeah okay okay out of nowhere a guttural agonized voice groaned jesus jesus And a second time it came again with a terrible urgency jesus jesus mrs may stopped still one hand lifted to her throat the sound was so piercing that she felt as if some violent unleashed force had broken out of the ground and was charging toward her her second thought was more reasonable somebody had been hurt on the place and would sue her for everything she had she had no insurance she rushed forward and turning a bend in the path she saw Mrs. Greenleaf sprawled on her hands and knees off the side of the road her head down okay skipping down to mrs. way Win- Mrs. Mrs. May winced Mrs. May winced she thought the word Jesus should be kept inside the church building like other words inside the bedroom she was a good <laughs> Christian. She was a good Christian woman with a large respect for religion, though she did not, of course, believe any of it was true.
0: Okay, so, um, well, why why did that passage in particular stand out to you?
1: Um, Because I think the driving metaphor of the story is that the bull is the Christ figure. And it's super foreshadowed both what is going to happen to her at the end and that he's the Christ figure. And I thought it was just most explicit here that, you know, she hears Jesus and then she reaches for her throat as if some violent unleashed force Mm. had come on her, because Jesus is the violent unleashed force and that's going to be the bull. And Mm. then at the end there, when she makes the connection between the church and the bedroom, which that's been the other, that's been the other controlling metaphor is that the bull is, is Christ who is the pursuing lover. So the bull is under the, in, he's in the moonlight under her window. She's in bed. She's in her nightgown. There's there's just all these these images. And Flannery O'Connor even says the bull puts his head in her lap, and he's like a yeah. lover. And it really so is. Like, there's
0: I, this like Rom- uh, Romeo and Juliet romantic thing
2: that's going on at the beginning of it, absolutely, right?
1: Absolutely. Because you even
0: have absolutely. you even have like the at the very beginning of
2: the story i think i got it david like some patient god come down to woo her
1: Yep. yes and so it's, zeus. it's like it's like zeus coming it's christ it's the lover <laughs> it's all of those things and he's in there he's got his hedge of thorns right his crown of thorns and so you know it's christ it's zeus it's it's the lover it's all of that um and i so i just i followed that image through the whole story and kept thinking about what you said last week about you thought that she's introducing a real medieval sensibility. So then of course I totally geeked out with what a medieval concept that was. So
0: yeah. And we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the, um, Little tease here. We're going to talk about the idea of like the medieval understanding of ecstasy at the end, and you've got a whole monologue you said about that that you've, that you've been thinking about. So. I
1: did. I actually walked around my bedroom this morning, just spontaneously <laughs> taught an entire lesson on, and then I was like, maybe I should save that for the show. We're,
0: we're so that's a little tease, <laughs> so you don't leave. So you know, if people want to stick around and listen to the whole show. They'll hear that towards the end when we get to the end. Um, yeah, this if is you're not mad
1: enough in me already.
2: This passage. I, is, I have a historical question for you guys. Go for it. Go for it. Is is. Jesus represented as a bull anywhere in ecclesiastical symbology? I mean, I just dropped two really fat, heavy words. I mean, in in
1: dude, I don't know, but you got the whole calf, the calf, the golden calf as the false god, right? I don't yeah. know. Um, the bull, it does mean something in mythology. I'm, I'm I can't it? think of what it is right now. But
0: well, didn't Zeus come down as a bull? In,
1: Um, I think so, right? For one of
2: its metamorphoses, he does. Yeah,
0: because he doesn't want Hera to know that he's after the um the the fair lady, right? Yeah. Am I am I wrong? Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Right.
1: And Hera turns her into a a cow, right? A white cow.
0: Yeah. Hmm? That's right. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, I
1: I do think that's a subtext, and the fact that her whole concern is that the bull is going to impregnate her cows too, you know, that's playing into it as well.
2: Oh, I didn't even think. Of course, I didn't even think about that.
0: But isn't the bull? Isn't there something in the bull related to something in the Gospels? Or am I crazy about that?
1: Yes and yes. No, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know.
2: David, you walked into that one, buddy. <laughs> well,
0: obviously, yeah. <laughs> Got to redeem. But myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Okay. So the um. Okay. So I just looked this up as you were talking because that that struck that rang something in my head. I don't know why. I, what I'm not speaking English right now, but um. So in the gospels one of the gospels refers to um the ox is the king of the domesticated animals um he, the grass eating ones and there somewhere in the gospels he's referred to as the as the ox I think I, I, I swear I've read this somewhere I really didn't prepare for this show huh. as you can tell at least in this this part of the conversation so um I'm going to have to look at look that up a little further anybody else that wants to research it should definitely mm-hmm. do that and I can't I can't tell I mean I can't really do research and talk at the same time uh, so I can't you know I have, I'll I'll try to look it up if we have a chance here or maybe I'll post it on the show notes but or anybody else that wants to look it up for us you know you're welcome to do that as well but angelina you talked about how the um there's a lot of foreshadowing here. And, and one of the reasons that I'd like to teach this story first is because it's a little more direct than a lot of her other stuff. So you can get at some mm-hmm. of the ideas that she's focusing on and the way she tells stories in a way that's a little less subtle. So everything that rises and a good man is hard to find. For example, are like deeply subtle in terms of how they present things, but there's so much foreshadowing in this one that when you read it a second time, you'll, you'll really see it come out. And And as you said here, there's the line about, the violent unleashed force that's broken out of the ground and was charging toward her. So literally O'Connor is just telling us what's going to happen later on.
1: Oh no. She's like, just in case you missed it, Jesus is the bull and it's going to gore her. Stay tuned for more. Yes, (laughs) I
0: I really think, and I think it's interesting. It's fun. How, I mean, fun in a storytelling sort of way, how she says that. And then the very next line is her second thought was something more reasonable. So she's just playing Uh with us. (laughs) And when you read it again, you're like, wait a second. She was being reasonable. It's just O'Connor's sense of humor coming out there.
1: No, but I think she's also getting at that whole modern versus medieval sensibility, right? Like, So she goes for the modern, the rational explanation rather yeah. than like the mystical, allegorical explanation.
0: She was a good Christian woman with a large respect for religion, though she did not, of course, believe any of it was actually true.
1: And that's the same thing, especially when you consider the time that this was written. You know, this is the time when there's the great debate in the Protestant church about, you know, liberalism versus the more conservative traditional mm-hmm, theology. Mm-hmm. And you have, you know, uh, different uh, seminaries breaking off and denominations breaking off over all these different theological issues. Right. You know, deciding that the oh, this seminary is too liberal and so they break off and have a more conservative one. So. So, I mean, she's really making a comment that's very, very true for that time about this sort of respectable religion, but nobody, I mean, no one really, you know, it makes us nice and respectable to go to church, but no one, no one really believes that stuff. And
2: do you right. guys think that that's the reason that her boys are the way that they are and the way that, and does it explain also that something about Mrs. Greenleaf's genuine belief explains why her boys kind of turn out pretty well. Do you think that's there's something significant there?
1: Well I couldn't stop laughing that they were named Wesley and Schofield.
2: Yeah well yeah, yeah. that was funny. That was very funny. <clears throat> you need to explain I mean explain that Angelina.
1: Well I mean that just the two the two two great Protestant theologians, right? And and John you know, Wesley and,
2: Reference yeah, Bible yeah. and John Wesley. Yeah. But, but right. why would she pick John Wesley? I mean is that the Catholic in Flannery O'Connor having fun with kind of the. Um...
1: Well, I thought it was. Yeah, well,
2: I think she's I also.
0: I, I think. I think what she's also making fun of. I don't think she's making fun of, um, like Protestantism, uh, specifically so much as a certain part of Protestantism Protestantism in the South that was not as Mrs. May is not actually really Protestant. True, well, you're right. Really the fact Christian. that she
1: gives her children these clearly, you know, meaningful names within the Christian tradition, but right. doesn't believe it herself.
0: Right. And, and Which, then, I
1: mean, that feeds into Tim's comment then. Is she passing on a tradition that she doesn't even really believe in? And is that why the sons are the way they are? I don't know.
0: Well, I do think that, you know, I, I mean, this is obviously a theme throughout her literature, her stories mm-hmm. is this this idea of the um the wayward child and, and like to what extent is the sins of the parents responsible for the sins of the children um, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of sometimes the parents are asking themselves that specifically you'll see that in some stories and a lot of times they're just um they're self-congratulatory condescending people like mrs may is and ultimately you know for flannery o'connor's dark grace for this you know for this idea of the violent unleashed force, which ultimately comes upon her to be a dark grace, there has to be something that is being overcome. Right. And she's, Mrs. May is so smug and so condescending. And ultimately it's a story about that. And I think what she's responding to is these people around her who, yeah, by they're essentially Protestant that they claim to be Protestant. They name their kids after these Protestant heroes. um, But really they're just, if that's just cultural and, and their, their greatest joy in life is being better than everyone else. And that there was, you know, I read somewhere that she was also at the time Mencken, I think, wrote some some really condescending article about like people like the Greenleafs, these very poor Southern people who seemed backwoods and would do things like what Mrs. Greenleaf did, which is a recurring character throughout O'Connor's uh, stories, especially her novels. But that she's responding to that and she's trying to say, the people who are are the problem here are not the people these poor people. The the, the problem is the people who look down on these people and doesn't see them as human beings. And that's you see that in everything that rises the same way, right where uh Julian is so condescending, but he doesn't actually see the people who he's condescending towards as human beings. um he thinks he's standing up for them, but he but he sees them as ideas, not people mm-hmm. um, and that goes along with the way Mrs. May sees the green leaves here where there's more she doesn't view them as human beings, the way she talks about them, I think that's why. Uh, one thing we haven't talked about, yet with O'Connor, is the use of certain choice words that we, that we can't say on the air, uh, race, you know, racial um, insults and things like that. And in this story, there's a lot of it that goes on. It shows up several times, mostly in through Mrs. May's internal narration, right? And I think that that's there as a really harsh kind of rebuke of. of oh, absolutely! Of, of her, it's meant to be. It's meant to make you you know, cringe. It's not meant to be something we're supposed to just accept and say, Oh, it's part of the time. Like you might a little bit more with say Huckleberry Finn. I was just right.
1: thinking that this is not the way Mark Twain uses it. This is when Flannery O'Connor has a character use that word. That character is always going to be condemned. Always.
2: Hmm. I and, have been in this story guys...
1: too. I was, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Tim.
2: No, no, you go ahead, Angelina in the story too. Well, I
1: was just, I was just thinking that Mrs. I don't know if Mrs. May is a racist as much as she's just a classist, right? She seems to put yeah. the the poor blacks in the same category with the poor whites. They're all it's all just they're all just trash, they're subhuman. Right. They're just but she's threatened by them and that's clear in the story as well. She's threatened by the upward mobility of the greenleaf. She's very resentful that the boys have made something of themselves.
0: Yeah, she doesn't talk all, I mean she uses that word but she doesn't specifically talk about how they're lesser than because they're black, right? it's because of their station in life and because she, you know and they because in a way they threaten their and their son's success threaten her own ability to be above them
1: which certainly is ha-
0: race related but also probably just as um at fault for much of what's many of the challenges in the South is class it, class differences as much as race issues. Well, maybe not as much. I don't want to overstep. Right. That, and well, that. And well,
1: and and we and we have another familiar character here. You know, this is another woman who's come down in the world, right? She's right. and and it, it makes me think of uh, the Harper Lee story we read, where she she makes the she what was the name of that book? The Watchman something. Oh gosh, the Watchman.
0: a Watchman. Oh, that, yeah, Yes, yeah.
1: thank you. That she she makes the point in there that it's. It's, it's whites that are kind of low on the social chain who are going to be the most digging in their heels against, you know, the white trash and the black people because they're threatened. Their place in the society is very threatened. They have to constantly um, make sure someone's beneath them.
2: The, to flash forward to the second to last story that we'll read as part of this collection, this is uh, a key plot point in Revelation. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: That's my favorite.
2: Mrs. Turpin, she has a vision at the end, and so much of that vision is about where she is or really kind of is not in the actual like, kingdom of heaven. She has this vision of where she belongs in society's structures, but when she has the vision that seems to be given to her by God, she's not where she thinks she is, and everybody else is not where she put them. So it, it's just another recurring theme in Flannery O'Connor's – that the kind of upside-down kingdom part of Flannery O'Connor.
0: Hey, y'all. So I was talking about the ox thing, right, and symbolizing like, related oh, yeah. to the Gospels. I found what'd it. What did you find? Okay, so um, Luke the Evangelist is symbolized by a winged ox or a bull, which is a figure of sacrifice, service, and strength. That part oh. is according to Wikipedia. So the ox also signifies that Christians should be prepared to sacrifice themselves in following Christ.
2: And because the ox was a, a sacrificial animal, well, we presume, is that right? A
0: service, a work animal, I suppose, things like that. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, I, now that's just a quick summary that I found. I haven't, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you guys ostensibly, so. Um, I had, that's, that was just a quick search. So if anybody else wants to do some more research, no, on but that, that's interesting because
1: interesting... that means when when the bull gores her, that it's also in a sense symbolically that she dies into herself.
0: And the other thing is, the bull ultimately dies, right? I mean, yes. the man—that's when he finally shoots it, right? When it—he it, mm-hmm. he wasn't going to shoot it; he didn't really want to. And then when it kills her, it finally he finally does. And so,
1: yeah. And and since the opening paragraph, she's been worried that the green leaves were going to undo her
0: yeah and they yeah.
1: do they do so i mean it's operating on many many levels
0: yeah yeah hey um I, I do love that idea of that you mentioned of uh like the bull kind of romancing her it's outside the window and it keeps coming back and it keeps coming back mm-hmm. it's got this like um uh harriet vane thing going on with uh <laughs> peter whimsy where it keeps coming it back
1: totally <laughs> does. it totally does because he's the patient lover he's pursuing her
0: and yet, the funny thing is, why why does she hate the bull so much?
1: That is a good question.
0: I mean, she claims that it's eating her plants, right?
2: But it's going to impregnate her her cows. yeah
0: it's
1: and, gonna...
2: she, and he's just a scrub bull. There's something inferior about the bull. He's going to yeah. like pollute the bloodline.
1: She's upset, too, that no one takes her being upset seriously. Yeah.
2: You know,
0: well, that's true. That's a Yeah, that's very true. Hey, Tim, do you have a favorite passage?
2: Yeah, I mean, I had chosen the same passage as Angelina. um, So I'll read another one that's a little bit kind of funny. It's a little bit more comic relief than it's something serious. Um, So the next page after the place where – or probably two pages after Angelina stopped reading is a description of uh, Miss May's two sons. Schofield only exasperated her during – beyond endurance, but Wesley caused her real anxiety. He was thin and nervous and bald, and being an intellectual was a terrible strain on his disposition. (laughs) She doubted if he would marry until she died, but she was certain that then the wrong woman would get him. Nice girls didn't like Schofield, but Wesley didn't like nice girls. He didn't like anything. He drove 20 miles every day to the university where he taught and 20 miles back every night. But he said he hated the 20 mile drive and he hated the second rate university and he hated the morons who attended it. He hated the country and he hated the life he lived. He hated living with his mother and his idiot brother and he hated hearing about the damn dairy and the damn help and the damn broken machinery. But in spite of all he said, he never made any move to leave. He talked about Paris and Rome, but he never even went to Atlanta.
0: Hey, keep... Now she – oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, uh, the passage that I wanted to talk about is the one immediately after that. Oh, yeah. So um, there. I'll go ahead and just read that then. Do it. Um, you'd go to these places and you'd get sick. Mrs. Mace would say, "Who in Paris is going to see that you get a salt-free diet?" And who do you think, if you, and do you think, if you married one of those odd n- numbers, you take out, that she would cook a salt-free diet for you? No, indeed, she would not. When she took this line, Wesley would turn himself roughly around in his chair and ignore her. Once, when she had kept it up too long, he had snarled, "Well, why don't you do something practical, woman? Why don't you pray for me like Mrs. Greenleaf would?" I don't like to hear you make jokes about religion," she had said. "If you would go to church, you would meet some nice girls." but it was impossible to tell them anything. So this really struck me this this time in a way that it hadn't in previous readings because she badgers him and badgers him until the point where he finally kind of responds, right? He normally would turn himself away and ignore her. But when she kept it up too long, he snarls, why don't you do something practical? Why don't you pray Mm -hmm. for me? And the interesting thing is that he is equating practicality with prayer. And in a sense, maybe he's joking and being kind of, um, I mean he's just snide. snide about it, yeah, snarly. But you know, I think that that juxtaposition there is very clearly purposeful by O'Connor. Because then she says, I don't like to hear you make jokes about religion. You should go to church to meet nice girls. And so he says, Why don't you pray for me? And she says, Don't make jokes. So it's almost like her son is pleading for her to pray for him. And the and fact then that she O'Connor makes make it a any... joke.
2: Yeah, and O'Connor does not say that Wesley said that. There's no indication that he was making a joke even though it would fit his character for it to be a joke. Right. It's notable that O'Connor doesn't say –
0: That's a great point. There's no tone. There's no description of his There's tone. no
2: tone. Yeah, there's no tone. There's no gesture of irony or sarcasm, I should say. It it does
0: say snarled, but snarled is only an indication of like frustration. That he really. said
1: it to hurt her, right. Yeah. yeah. And and that and that so she
0: flips that by saying it's a joke, and then and then for her church is a place where you go to meet nice girls, right? Right, mm-hmm. right,
1: right. It's like
2: I a mean, there's,
1: club. There are, it's so brilliantly structured. There's all this doubling, right? So I mean, right there in that speech, you see the doubling of Mrs. May and Mrs. Greenleaf. Mrs. May thinks Mrs. Greenleaf's useless, an idiot, a moron, a terrible mother. The irony that this terrible mother is going to have sons who make something of um, themselves in the world. This really bothers her. And then the sons, of course, are are doubled, and and it's brilliantly done here, right? Wesley has gone nowhere, has done nothing, has not gotten married, and and she makes the Paris reference, whereas the Greenleaf boys did go to France. They come back with French wives, and not trash, but, well, well, you know, good girls, right, she says, Mm -hmm. and they come back, and now they've got bilingual children, and they're going to go to the convent school, and they're going to become, what What are they going to become? Society, and this Mm -hmm. kills her, right? This kills Mm -hmm. her.
0: Well, if you flip back... To where you read Angelina right after that, it ties into this idea of of them, you know, the idea of um, making a name for yourself and the idea of religion as utility. Because right after what you read, um, it says Mrs. May stood bent forward, her mouth open and her stick raised off the ground as if she were not sure what she wanted to strike it. Oh, Jesus, stab me in the heart, Miss Greenleaf shrieked. Jesus, stabbed me in the heart. And she fell back flat on the dirt, a huge human mound. Her legs and arms spread out as if she were trying to wrap them around the earth. Super interesting image there, by the way. Mm-hmm. Then it says Mrs. May felt as furious and helpless as if she had been insulted by a child, which, again, that tells us a lot about her. When a yeah. child insults her, she gets furious, right? Jesus, she said, drawing herself back, would be ashamed of you. He would tell you to get up from there this instant and go wash your children's clothes. And she had turned and walked off as fast as she could. And this is such a Mary Martha moment, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So um, she's Martha, right? She's saying, you know, stop stop asking Jesus to stab you in the heart. Like, m- you know, Mary's after something, some kind of ex- like something experiential, shall we say. We'll just put it that way that word for right now she's she's after an experience she's after something that's going to change her right and um of course this then also is more foreshadowing to her herself being stabbed in the heart right mm-hmm. um, and uh she says you know jesus would be ashamed of you because you can't wash your kids clothes um but you can come out here and pray and then you come to this other part later on where she's basically making a mockery out of prayer she's joke she thinks he's joking when she's talking about prayer um and the church being utility and all that and so for her there's this there's this relationship between religion and utility that mm-hmm. that is similar to this idea of it's it helps you it helps you make a name for yourself but in the end her her approach to that has not allowed her children to make a name for themselves whereas as we said earlier as you said earlier Tim greenleaf's children have made a name for themselves and just the, yeah. o'connor doesn't draw a direct connection that i've seen so far between her faithfulness mrs greenleaf's faithfulness unique though it may be Um, And a little eccentric, though maybe it is, um, at least within this world. Um, But it's clear she doesn't
2: draw a direct connection between Mrs. Greenleaf's eccentric faith and and her children's success. Yeah, not
0: directly, but there's something at least.
1: But Mrs. May draws the connection, and she thinks it's ironic.
0: Right. Well, that's true. Yeah. She. Yeah. Despite her mother despite right. their yeah. mother and father yeah
1: but i yeah. want to talk about for just a second the weirdness of mrs greenleaf's religion cuz i think we see this a lot in flannery o'connor's stories right it's we have
0: especially clean... in the violent beard away the novel
1: yeah so we have clean neat respectable religion but that is always portrayed as dead
0: yeah, mm-hmm. and
1: then we the people who have like true religious feeling are off the charts weird, right? And then so we're Christians and we're like, yeah, but I mean, Mrs. Greenleaf can't really represent true Christianity. I and mean, This is a nut job, right? But yeah, I mean, O'Connor I wonder, speaks about
0: religion in extremes in her stories. Like, she the characters does, and are I, extremes. but
1: I, and I, and I wonder though if, if what she's trying to do is is to make the case that true religion looks weird. It looks weird to a modern because really it does, right? Yeah. And so she just takes out the subtlety. I mean, if Mrs. Greenleaf was just somebody who prayed in a normal looking way, but truly fervently believed it, that would still be weird to Mrs. May. But so she's just exaggerating the weirdness because, I mean, true faith does look weird. It doesn't make sense. It seems, well, it seems superstitious, right? And as a Catholic, she would be very familiar with the charge that her religion is superstitious. And so she draws that out in these stories to make true religion Mm -hmm. appear weird and superstitious and... Dirty even, and
2: you know? Not- I think part of I think what's going on is she, like David said, she she's kind of either or. She's making exaggerated she's exaggerating.
0: They're caricatures.
2: Her yeah, mm-hmm. they're caricatures. Mm-hmm. They're believable caricatures, but she's exaggerating to make her point. And I think her point kind of belongs with something I read in C. S. Lewis. Maybe you guys can help me remember where I read it. He talks about He says, imagine this scene that there is a Western sociologist who goes, you know, into the wilderness somewhere. And there he sees a tribesman who is kneeling before his idol, offering it um, some sort of, you know, burnt sacrifice and worshiping this little idol. He said, the Christian looking at this scene who's a westerner might feel himself identifying with the sociologist who's supposedly objective but the christian actually should have more in common with the man who is burning to an idol because religiously speaking that's kind of the place that christianity at least begins in and mm-hmm. i think that clare o'connor is doing something similar that
1: i agree yeah she
2: might be exaggerating mrs greenleaf um but there's something about Mrs. Greenleaf's belief. The she, it's genuine. She yeah. really buys it.
0: Yeah, I, I was going to say that. I think it's it's a it's a caricature, but it's also, I think O'Connor has an appreciation for these kind of people because I because th- there, there were people around her that had this kind of extreme. Oh yeah. religious yes. fanaticism.
1: Especially uh, in the south. Yeah, a, I mean, I yeah. I have seen a it's lot of true. faith healers in my life and you know snake handlers the whole the whole bit.
0: Yeah. And it's a it's kind of some of them are more genuine in in their belief than others. But um I th- I think genuine belief is something that is is um deeply appealing to O'Connor. If you read her the book mm-hmm. that came out of her prayers, the prayer journal from her early 20s, you see that a lot cuz she's constantly questioning the genuine genuineness of her own faith. And a mm. lot of these characters have this kind of holy fool thing about them, right?
2: Yeah.
1: Oh yeah.
0: Um no, I don't I haven't thought about that a lot, so I don't want to say anything more about that, but it's an
2: interesting But
1: that's also a, a medieval idea. Right. The totally. for Christ.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: I wonder if the if we if there's anything um kind of like a vision of medieval ecstasy anywhere in this book. Ha ha
1: ha. Is that my is that my cue? I didn't get the script. That's your cue, girl.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about
0: the bull goring her at the end. Uh, spoiler uh, alert. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we presume you've re- all of these stories are going to end with some weird, gory thing. Um, yeah,
0: to some degree or another.
1: To some degree, yeah. Very. I was like, they don't all actually not, have a Not everything then. is like this. We've read two, you know, dead heroines at the end of the story. But I dead say, moms. That, they're not all dead moms.
0: <laughs> that's one of the reasons I like doing this one first with students because high school students are like reading along, and then all of a sudden she gets gored, and then it's over, and they're like, "What in the world?" Um, <laughs> and then you get to kind of unpack what's actually going on. And but they, they, it, it, let's just say, it gets their attention, right? And that's the O'Connor's whole thing, right? In a world that doesn't hear you unless you shout, you have to shout.
2: Mm.
1: So, oh yeah. Okay. So okay, ecstasy. I like that. Medieval all arts right, to so, see. Okay, so taking the idea of Christ as the lover and, and also taking, uh, taking the metaphor of the marriage act and expanding that to all the things that it means on a spiritual level. So you have lots of medieval art where that's the theme. So you take something like the ecstasy of St. Teresa, right? right? This is this is a woman who's, you know, the, the Holy Spirit is pouring down on her in the statue, but it's it's highly sexual, and the expression on her face is very sexual. And so um, the, the medievals would tie together, you know, the, the idea of the climax of the physical act with the ecstasy of, of spirituality, and even mm. the idea that the sex act is just a foreshadowing of, of the ecstasy that will come when we're united with God, right? So it's all just a metaphor for them on, on a bunch of different levels. So for Flannery O'Connor to be tying all that in together, that, that it's the, um, that Christ is the husband, but he's also the pursuing lover and, uh, you know, and there's the romance there and it's going to come as this climactic thing, which the fact that it ends in death and the medievals would have referred to that moment as the little death. I mean, it's just, you know, it all, it's, it's all connected right. and, um, and, and the fact that it's violent also would not have been uncomfortable for the medievals. <laughs> um, the idea that there has to be some overpowering, that Christ is not just going to woo you, but he's also, in a sense, going to overpower your will. So you've got John Donne taking that imagery, right, in Batter My Heart, Three-Person God for Thee, Yeah, my favorite, yeah, yeah. where he says, you know, rape me to make me pure. So he's saying to God, rape me, okay? This, this is This is not... This is not comfortable ground for for moderns, right? But, mm. but but the the medievals and the Renaissance, you know that that's all very comfortable language and metaphor. Um, and so John Donne is just using this very um well, metaphysical poets, and really O'Connor's doing the same thing. They're intentionally using very shocking physical images to to show you a spiritual truth. And she's doing the same thing. So he's asking God, you know, rate me to make me pure. and and it's a similar similar kind of violent, but it's a it's a violence that happens to Mrs. May at the end, but it's also in the language of the lover, right? Yeah. I mean, when he's gently trying to pursue her, she rejects him, right? So you got the Romeo and Juliet scene at the beginning, yep. Yep. and she opens up the window and is like, get out.
0: He's pursuing, Go and he's away. pursuing, and she's rejecting, and she's rejecting.
1: Right, again so again finally he has to overcome her, which again, this is, you know... <laughs> It's a metaphor. We don't want to take that too far. It's a metaphor about the spiritual pursuit.
0: Well, and of course, the language itself. We could break down the language in this passage, which is, well, Angelina, why don't you read from? Uh, she looked back and saw that the bull. Read that. Read that next. Read till the end of the story, because it's just the language there. If you listen carefully, is every you know, it's all about what you're talking about here.
1: It is. I'm trying. Okay, shall I see it? Shall, uh, it's, it's the middle of that second right, last right, paragraph, right where I started underlining. I should have known. <laughs> She looked back and saw that the bull, his head lowered, was racing toward her. She remained perfectly still, not in fright, but in a freezing unbelief. She stared at the violent black streak bounding toward her as if she had no sense of distance, as if she could not decide at once what his intention was. and The bull had buried his head in her lap like a wild, tormented lover before her expression changed. One of his horns sank until it pierced her heart and the other curved around her side and held her in an unbreakable grip. She continued to stare straight ahead, but the entire scene in front of her had changed. The tree line was a dark wound in a world that was nothing but sky, and she had the look of a person whose sight had been suddenly restored, but who finds the light unbearable.
0: Read the next paragraph, go ahead.
1: Mr. Greenleaf was running toward her from the side with his gun raised, and she saw him coming, though she was not looking in his direction. She saw him approaching on the outside of some invisible circle, the tree line gaping behind him and nothing under his feet. He shot the bull four times through the eye. She did not hear the shots, but she felt the quake in the huge body as it sank, pulling her forward on its head, so that she seemed, when Mr. Greenleaf reached her, to be bent over, whispering some last discovery into the animal's ear."
0: So, so much of it, there's so much of this this language that i noticed noticed um, this time that I didn't notice last time that the, she remained perfectly still, not in fright, but in a freezing mm-hmm. unbelief right at that moment. the freezing unbelief is really, really interesting. Well, yeah,
1: because, I mean, that shows that this we're talking about a spiritual metaphor here that her, you know, she can't, her unbelief is her issue. It's been her issue all along, right?
0: Yeah. So the whole part where, obviously says like a wild, tormented lover, but then the idea of being wrapped around, you know, like Mm -hmm. one's horns around her side while one's in her heart, an unbreakable grip.
1: And Um, even being pierced in the heart, I mean, there's a lot of mythological overtones to that, right? Cupid pierces you through the heart. That's how you fall in love.
2: Right. Yep. Hmm. One of my students, right before I started this podcast, was talking to me about uh, one of O'Connor's early stories and uh, the barber. So I think it's the second one in the collected, in the complete stories. And he said, Do you think that that's how God actually operates? Does grace always have to be violent? And I don't think that he meant physically violent. I think he would, you know, we would probably all recognize that no, it doesn't necessarily. But I thought that that question was really compelling, and maybe in subsequent um, podcasts we can discuss this, w- whether or not God's grace does tend to be violent.
1: You know, I love that because while some, someone might be a very uncomfortable with how violent Flannery O'Connor's stories are, I think we're immune a little bit because we're so familiar with the scriptures to how violent that language is, right? Mm. We have to die and be born again. We have yeah. to be crucified with Christ. Be crucified with Christ? That's violent. Yeah. That's the most violent thing there was in the ancient world. And God's saying, hey, man, you're going to have to be crucified. Mm-hmm. So this, it's a lot, there's a lot of violent imagery there as well. What Language, you, I mean.
0: What do you make of the ending where, it's, where it appears that um, she seemed to be whispering into the animal's ear?
2: I didn't know what to do with that.
0: I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a romantic
1: that's what thing, I right. think. I think it's romantic that she's finally responding to her lover where she's – at the beginning, she's telling him to get away, and now she's responding to her lover. She's whispering in his ear.
2: And it's a discovery, some last discovery right. into the animal's ear. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so this is one of those – one thing that's interesting about this story is you could really – I mean like if you're talking about with the right group of people, you can get into that the whole – romantic language in some depth and really break down a lot of stuff and that with with high school kids i avoided being too directly too directly drawing connections too directly to sexual stuff Um, oh yeah i know but i
1: feel like in my classes i'm the queen of euphemisms man
2: yeah why Do do high schoolers think about sex
1: Oh, it's not the high schoolers I'm worried about. It's the angry letters from parents.
2: <laughs> right,
0: of my, my
1: kid doesn't know what sex all, is. All the, the
0: all the people who are listening to this with their kids right now are very very um confused right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, we might want to put a warning at the front of this one, huh? But, yeah. uh, I mean, yeah, like the whole scene, right? Just it's it's a very kind of flirtatious even pose of her body right she gets out the car she's lying against the hood of the car she's yep. got her eyes closed you yep. know that's a very flirtatious pose yep. and
0: the ending has that like i mean if if i may it has that like kind of like post-coital thing going on mm. yeah
1: mm. yeah right they're in the they're in the lover's embrace
0: so on the one hand it like um well i was gonna would you say this is the most like does the allegory of this story the way it comes across as allegorical does it diminish the quality of the story compared to her other work that is more subtle i don't choose this story to teach it first because i think it's the best but because i think it helps get at what she's doing um yeah i maybe maybe that's the wrong decision like maybe you should start with a more subtle one and then read a different one um No, I actually think that's
1: a right decision. That's why I start with Revelation, because the same idea, right? She pulls back the curtain and she lets you see what it is that she's doing in all of her stories. So I actually think that's a wise choice.
0: Uh, Do you think that in this case it diminishes, like it makes it a lesser story than?
1: Oh, you know, I'm never gonna say an allegory diminishes it. So (laughs) it's pretty clear that I think it's great. I think it is the
0: medieval in her, though. Right? We've been talking about that for two episodes now. That there's so she is very attached to the medieval sensibility and it's clear it's not just in her theology or the way she approaches um metaphysics as we talked about last week but her the way she tells stories as well like the the medieval storytelling sensibility
1: oh absolutely and that okay and so one of the marks of a medieval story is it's deliberately weird
0: right yeah that's true and
1: and um so so one of the ways i like to explain it to my to my class is that Um, Okay, so moderns have this really almost schizophrenia when it comes to storytelling. On the one hand, we demand this realism in our stories, right, our movies or whatever. Uh, On the other hand, that's not how we are in our regular life. In our regular life, we run up to our friends and say, wait, you guys got to hear this crazy weird thing that happened to me today, right? That is how the medievals approach storytelling. For them, What would be the point of telling a story of, like, I woke up and I had some cereal and and nothing really happened, and then I went to school and it was just a normal day? Like, they would be like, what is the point of that story, right? For a medieval, it's all about, hey, listen to this weird thing. So this knight comes in and they chop his head off and he puts it back on. That's crazy, right? You know, that's how medievals told stories, listen to this weird thing. And that's Flannery O'Connor's stories are all listen to this weird thing.
0: Do you think that there is um, that part of it? is just that their lives were darker and more full of craziness whereas we can kind of uh, settle into the mon- mundaneness of the 21st century a little bit more easily than they could have. And so I don't know. I've <clears throat> no I've no idea about this. I'm just
1: It seems
2: like they're not the medievals weren't wed to realism.
1: Our sense think... in the same way that we are. Yeah, they weren't and as I think true. that
2: O'Connor's kind of... Connor can be, in some of her lectures, can be a little bit disdainful about the kind of obligations of realism in modern novels. And so I wonder if... Um, it just doesn't... She, it, it, In some ways, she's a total realist. I mean, she's using... She's painting realistic characters, but on another level, she's just so much not, like... An early twentieth-century social commentator.
1: Yeah, novel. right. Like, if what you mean by realism is gritty, <laughs> you know, yeah. she's gritty.
2: Yeah, she's definitely gritty. But if we mean by realism, there's nothing. Um. Oh, there's nothing deeper going on than the psychological clash of characters within a um, socially situated narrative. If that's what realism is, she's not a realist right. because she's yeah. got so much more that she's <laughs> trying to convey.
1: Right. She's not offering psychological. Um, uh, what, 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 what do I want to say? You know, she's not doing a psychological analysis of these characters. No. No. Right? These are these well, are spiritual. on some level,
2: she is. It's but it's a psychological. Well, it's a spiritual psychological. Yes. Sort of
1: analysis. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. She wouldn't make that. She wouldn't draw that distinction. It would all be the same. Yeah, the heart. Right. The heart. That would be a medieval understanding of it. it the yeah. heart, which which is your your spiritual element and your emotional and your psychological psychological, but but for a modern, of course, that would be very um, sort of reduced, right, to biological synapses firing and balances in the brain. If you guys
2: read Ian Mc, uh Helen McEwen, the novelist, yeah, he wrote British Atonement novel. and such.
1: I exactly. actually read Atonement, y'all. It's an modern book. I found it at Goodwill and I read it. Okay, I got... Oof, no, I, I think it's
2: about. a good book. I think it's a very good book. And I think there's another book called Saturday. I, in some ways, Flannery O'Connor is the is the antithesis of Ian McEwen. Is it McEwen? I think it's McEwen. I think he's a really fine novelist. But I always get to the end of his books and I just feel frustrated because... For him, everything is material. It's yes. just material. Yes, you know?
1: yes. Thank and you for helping me articulate my disappointment with that book. Yeah. Not that you yeah. thought it was a bad book, right? I, it, it just left me wanting, right? Like it was right. just, yeah, no, you're absolutely right.
2: And I think that she she takes that next step that I think some of the 21st century's finest novelists, they always seem to come up short. I include him. um, Who's the guy who wrote – oh, sorry, David. This is terrible (laughs) airtime. Why can't I remember his name? Um, Is it The Commitments that he wrote in another book called Freedom? Freedom is is the huge bestseller.
1: David and I both Googling right as you speak. We keep it riveting here on Close Reads.
2: Yeah, here it is. Freedom a novel by Jonathan
1: Oh, Jonathan, oh, Jonathan Franzen. Franzen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay.
2: I think I th- I think Jonathan Franzen is an absolutely delightful novelist. I mean, he's so good. He has that rare combination of real depth of characters and intriguing ideas and he also the plots move you forward you want to keep turning the pages but I get done and I always just think oh there's the spiritual part of it is just neglected this is a spiritual book that he's trying to write or that he is writing but his tools prohibit him from ever touching it. And it's what O'Connor does so exceedingly well through a constant allusion to kind of like the mysterious nature of being a human being and how violence breaks through to that mystery that just, I think for her, for me, that's why she's, we're still talking about her two generations later. And I just wonder if we're not going to be talking about friends in two generations because of that lack. hmm Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah. Hey. Go ahead. Finish that thought.
1: Um. Well, I was going to tell a story that I heard um, years ago at well, the very first Cersei conference I went to, 2008. A guy was giving a talk on T.S. Eliot and told the story of how Russell Kirk was friends with both... Do you know the story? He was friends with both T.S. Eliot and Flannery O'Connor? No. Yeah, and so um, he... So Russell Kirk says... Uh, They're doing the same thing. T.S. Eliot and Flannery O'Connor are both doing the same thing. They're both fighting modernity and trying to take us back to this, you know, uh, kind of mystical medieval sensibility. Right. They're both trying to reclaim the Western tradition against modernity. So he he writes to T.S. Eliot and says, you know, have you heard about this American author, Flannery O'Connor? I really feel like you guys are doing the same thing. And I would like to introduce you to. To which T.S. Eliot replies, essentially, yeah, I tried to read some of her stuff, but no. <laughs> T.S. Eliot, not a fan, right? Crazy. That makes me feel better about my George McDonald thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but T.S. Eliot also didn't like Hamlet, remember?
1: Oh, yeah.
2: Yes. Yes.
1: Well, I like Flannery O'Connor more than T.S. Eliot, so you know, I think we know where <laughs> I fall too. on this.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, hey, we're running out of time. We got to wrap this up. But any final thoughts?
2: None from me.
1: Uh, It was interesting to read this story now that I have read quite a bit of Wendell Berry. I felt like I was a little more sympathetic to Mr. Greenleaf because we read so much Burley. Burley Coulter.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I haven't thought about that. That Oh, you didn't make
1: that – you didn't think about that? As soon as I started reading about the way Mr. Greenleaf held himself and, you know – I just I read him a little more mischievous and less of a loser.
0: Yeah, well, I think that O'Connor doesn't like hide the eccentricities of these characters or even the um, backwoodsness of them, so to speak. Like, I don't think she denies that that is true of them, just as Barry doesn't. I don't think about Burley, but at the same time, she doesn't view that as some kind of an inherent neg- inherently negative thing, like so many people do. Like, she mm-hmm. sees the humanness and the value in that, and that goes that goes a long way. Um, but um, yeah, that's a great thought.
1: And we have another um, character archetype of the mother who works herself to the bone. So a widow, right, who's come down in the world, who works herself to the bone for her kids, and her kids have, you know, have they have this resentful relationship, this tortured relationship. And and even though she doesn't bring it out the way she did with Julian, it's clear that Wesley is ambivalent about his mother because he complains about it, but he never left, mm, right. Yeah 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 some some more kind of loser sons who live with their mom but then hate it
0: yeah 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 well up next we have a view of the woods that's the next story so uh read that one for next week and we will be back to chat more flannery o'connor two down um these conversations have been great thanks to everyone who's been listening angelina and tim thanks for your insights Thank you, David. Oh,
1: thank you, David.
0: Uh, for Angelina and for Tim and for all of us here at Circe I'm David Curran saying farewell here on the Circe Institute Podcast Network. We'll talk to you next time.